This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey, it's Alec. On February 16th, it was announced that Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny had died in prison. From January 2021 on, he was in Russian captivity because of charges including fraud, embezzlement, and extremism. Navalny had recently been transferred to a remote penal colony in the Arctic Circle, where Russian authorities claimed that the 47-year-old Putin critic died from sudden death syndrome after taking a walk in the penitentiary. Many world leaders have blamed Vladimir Putin directly for Navalny's death. In 2022, I spoke with Daniel Rohrer, the director of the Academy Award-winning documentary Navalny. The film follows the activist as he recovers from a previous Russian assassination attempt and the lead-up to his voluntary return to Russia. Here's my conversation with director Daniel Rohrer and investigative journalist Christo Grotsev. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. When Russian opposition leader and fierce Putin critic Alexei Navalny fell violently ill on a flight in August of 2020, it was suspected he was poisoned by Novichok, a Soviet-era nerve agent. He was medically evacuated to Berlin and fell into a coma, but miraculously survived. My guests today, filmmaker Daniel Rohr and investigative journalist Christo Grotsev, were at the center of the unfolding drama that resulted in the gripping documentary Navalny. The film documents the quest to identify those responsible for the poisoning and the plight of Alexei Navalny, whose anti-corruption platform landed him in a Russian prison, where he remains to this day. Come on. Poisoned? Putin's supposed to be not so stupid to use this Novichok. If you want to kill someone, just shoot him. Jesus Christ. It's impossible to believe it. It's kind of stupid. The, the whole idea of poisoning with a chemical weapon, what the f***? This is why this is so smart. 
Because even reasonable people, they refuse to believe, like, what? Come on, poisoned? Seriously? Prior to Navalny, Daniel Rohr directed the feature documentary Once Were Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the band about the rock group. He also shot and directed several short docs and has been nominated for multiple Canadian Screen Awards. Rohr has been developing his craft since a young age. He spent a year at SCAD, the Savannah College of Art and Design, but found his passion in a high school film class at the Etobicoke School of the Arts in Toronto. We had this fabulous film teacher. He was like a, a, a sort of curmudgeonly cool, nice guy, and he was very What was stern. his name? What, Johnson? Mr. Johnson. Uh, Kevin. And uh, I was, uh, he had this film class, and so I had a little cohort of film friends. We called ourselves the Man Clan. And the joke was we were not manly at all. We were a bunch of film nerds, and yeah. we would just—this was when DSLRs became a thing. So about 10 years ago or, or, or 15 years ago, you could buy a little DSLR— for seven or eight hundred dollars, and you could get a shallow depth of field, an image that looked like a movie. And to me, at seventeen years old, that was revelatory. And so, my friends, we'd run around Toronto. We we once had the subway system shut down by accident, setting off smoke alarms. My dad still gives me a hard time for the time I set off the smoke alarm in his house when we were seventeen or eighteen. But being creative, making movies, making things, and it all started for me in in Etobicoke, this fabulous school that I was able to attend when I was a teenager. Now, when you went to SCAD, because I, I love SCAD, and SCAD's like a lot of these schools who, over the arc of my lifetime, you know many decades now, they have, you know, raised the money and grown so significantly. And, uh, you know, SCAD, when you go down there to Savannah, they've taken over half the town. You know, every available yep. building they bought yep. and have uh, incorporated into that program. And you went there for just one year or not even a full year? I went there for about a year. Um, I was in Savannah for one year and amazing place. Super cool town. But I'm not a school guy. <laughs> And it has nothing to do with that school. It's just that no I'm, matter what Kevin Johnson imparted to you, no, you were no, done. I, I was finished with Kevin Johnson. <laughs> mic drop. That was it. <laughs> with Kev, uh, that that was it. You I, learned everything you needed to know from Kevin Johnson from Kev's film class, right. Ke Mr. Johnson's film class. Right. I learned everything I needed to know, and I decided that I wanted to make documentaries. And the best way to do that would be to just make documentaries. Now why documentaries? Well, documentaries were this art form that, for me, existed at the confluence of all these things I was interested in. I I was very curious about traveling and seeing the world and history and art and culture and filmmaking, cinematography, editing, but also music and drawing, animation, painting. Were your parents in the arts? They had a, uh, they were in retail, the schmutta business. My mom and dad had a, a clothing store called Higher Ground and Higher Ground for Kids in Toronto for about 30, 35 years. And so my dad sold outerwear, like North Face, Patagonia, our yeah. character's Canada Goose. And so we were always, the spirit of travel was something that we was always imparted on, onto my brother and I. We'd go on canoe trips in Algonquin Park as, as, as teenagers and as kids. And so I always had this sense of traveling and getting out into the world was something really important and valuable. And, and my dad has a bunch of corny phrases that he always says that are just foundational to my life. And one of them is travel off the beaten path. And certainly that's the, the choice I chose when I dropped out of school and, and tried to pursue other things. Now, the film is out. The film is going to be released in 800 cinemas around the U.S. on April 11th and 12th. Oh, okay, great. And this is obviously extraordinarily exciting for all of us. That's a lot of screens That's for a, a lot of screens for a doc. And, and certainly uh, Warner Brothers, who were so grateful for distributing the film, understands the critical mission of getting this film out now right. as quickly as possible.
When did you first become aware of Navalny? I've been aware of Navalny for a few years now just because I'm in, I'm interested in Russia and Russian politics and geopolitics is something that I'm interested in and and if you're in the West and you're interested in Russia Navalny's name is unavoidable but certainly my interest in him peaked in the summer of 2020 when news circled around the world that he had been poisoned and I remember vividly this 3-day struggle when he was in this hospital in Siberia and the authorities weren't letting him leave and there was this weird behavior happening something strange was going on a weird weird thing that they wouldn't let him go. They wouldn't let him go to Germany. And eventually they did. They relented. He he was in recovery. They wanted that poison to sink in there a little longer. I, I, think, I think so. Sink in or fade out. Um, so Maybe the Germans yeah. couldn't detect it. I forgot it. that. That's in the movie. Yeah. And so um, it, that was in my consciousness. So at no point did it ever cross my mind at that stage that, oh, I should go make a movie about this guy. It never would have entered my, my plane of reality. Why? Well, it just I was sitting in Toronto painting an apartment. Uh, I, I just didn't occur to me. It wasn't until I was sitting next to this man, Christo Grosev, who's here with us today, that I thought, oh, maybe we should go make a film about this. Maybe we should go pursue this. But is it the same way with all of even your earlier shorter films? You do the one about sex abuse, but from the priest up, yeah. up in the indigenous people's uh, play the, spot the in northern Ontario. prolific sex offender in Canadian mm. history is a, I made a The film. name of the film is? Survivor's Row. Survivor's Row, because his name is Roe. The man's name was Ralph Rowe. He was an Anglican minister that had this little prop plane, and he would fly up to these communities, and everyone adored him. He was like this this wizard. A missionary. Fly in, and everyone thought he was great, and he'd take the kids on camping trips, but only the boys. And it turned out that he was one of the most insidious criminals in Canadian history. He, was, mm. he abused hundreds, if not thousands, of boys. And so mm. I, when I was 21 or 22, made a short film with this extraordinary film producer in, in Toronto called Peter O'Brien. And we made a film about this man's crimes. Was it his idea and he hired you to direct? Or That's was, right. right. When, when I was 20 or 21. Right. And uh, that, that film made a little bit of noise. People saw it and I think was very significant to, as a tool for the community to heal and, and, mm. have, and have that. Um, oh, special. But it was, you know, very challenging. And, and we've since entered uh, a different place in, in Canada. I don't know that that's a film I would have directed now. I think that we would be much better suited finding one of the many uh, indigenous filmmakers to tackle that story. But in, right. in that moment... You feel sensitive about that? Well, very much, of course, absolutely. I think now it's very important we have to think about who gets to tell what story. Mm -hmm. And in 2013 or 2014, when I made that movie, I had no consciousness of that. That's not something that was on my radar. It was only years late, later that I reflected on it and questioned whether or not I was the right guy to tell that story. And the film was successful, and I think the community was appreciative that I made it. But I think now I would I would really question that, and I would really seek community consultation. And it's complicating to note that you're, you know, when you talk about your career in the brief minutes we've been talking now, you lose sight of the fact of how young you are. You know, so in other words, we, we, we tell the audience that you're 29 years old. 28. 20, oh, Thank you very much. He's gone Hollywood. Full, full blown <laughs> now. He's full flag Hollywood now. The 28-year-old Daniel, you don't realize that you've been doing this for years now, and this inclusivity, diversity thing has unfolded most vividly during those 10 years, during your career, your lifetime. Absolutely. And especially in Canada, our consciousness about the vital necessity of which communities get to tell which stories has, has really come to the forefront. It's something that I'm mindful of as a, you know, a Jewish kid that grew up in Toronto. It's something that I really have to think about. My view is, you know, it's, it's, 
The success of an individual filmmaker's career leads them to where they are today. There's films you're making now that people are benefiting from. They're learning about the world. Documentary films can often be the beachhead for people to understand a topic, to understand events in history beyond books and beyond classroom learning. Documentaries have become tools for learning. And uh, I, I say to myself, the guy that's directing Navalny, let's let's be uh, grateful for his roots and how he got to where he is. But anyway, I'd like to just shift for a second because we do have our other guest here, Christo Grozev. You sit there and you see that Navalny is going to come back to Moscow. And you go, why? Why does he come back to Moscow knowing? I mean, he must have known what the potential was. He seems to be being charged with embezzlement all the time. And, and, and the charge is dropped. And he runs for mayor and gets 27% of the vote, which is significant, but not anything earth-shattering. But, he, but he's got a, a political following. I want you to take me through this line of right before he's poisoned, where is he, what he's doing. We're going to try you for embezzlement. And then we suspend, we don't do this, we don't do this, and then we poison you. Take me through what's going on with Putin, the Russians, and Navalny before he's going to get poisoned. Well, what we found out actually is that they tried to poison him years earlier. So they started tailing him, this whole unit of the Russian security services, the FSB, that comprises not only political police, like the scary muscle guys, but also chemical weapons specialists within the FSB and doctors within the FSB. So a kill team, a poison team, they started telling him the moment he announced his bid for the presidency. That was in 2017. And they tailed him on a total of 66 trips around the country throughout his whole campaign. So every little village he visited, they were there. They, they stayed in hotels near him. They usually arrived just a couple of hours before he arrived or, or were left uh, just after he left. So they were there waiting for a sign-off from apparently Putin for him to be whacked, to be killed. But this didn't come for years, or maybe it did come. What we don't know is maybe they tried, but mm-hmm. Moscow 4 is a phrase that comes out in this film, and people who see it will know that it's, it's, a, it's a, a sort of a code word for Russia's incompetence at the official level. So it could be that they tried earlier to poison him, but didn't work out. So the only thing we see is that in July, just a month and a half before the actual coma uh, poisoning, the same team followed his and him and his wife to their getaway to a Baltic coast in Russia, in the, in the Kaliningrad, Koenigberg. And apparently they tried to poison them there again because we see his wife falling almost into a coma because she experiences similar symptoms to what he did a month so later. So the wrong people eating the custard? Is that the problem with the KGB or the FSB? Well, they're, they're just not great at poisoning they're people? Not, they're not great. I mean, they, uh, but, but they try again. I mean, they have what, what they lose in competence, they, they make up in, in resilience. So they do it years later. They and keep trying. They keep trying. They tried it twice on another politician who lives here, actually, uh, Vladimir Karamurza. Same poison. Team. They tried to poison him here. They poisoned him there. Right. He came back here because his family lives here. He decided to go back for a campaign trip six months later, poisoned him again. So they tried. They tried many times, not just once. So why that moment in time? It's the wrong question because maybe they tried for four years and that yeah. was just the one time that they made enough sort of dosage into get into his bloodstream by essentially smearing his underpants. That's what happened. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. went in through him, through his yeah. lower body parts. Exactly. So he goes to Berlin. He finally gets out of there and goes to Germany to get treated, and he's cured. Navalny, as I see him on screen in Daniel's film, is crisp and sharp and alert and bright-eyed and doesn't seem impaired in any way as a figure in the film. And then he gets cured, and he comes back again. Yeah. Like, like who around him is counseling him? Who is advising him? 
that you could stay here and be the leader of an opposition. You could tour the world and be the darling of the Western world. Very few people would command the same resources that Navalny commanded in raising money. He could be, it could be like the Clinton Foundation, his foundation, yeah. and raising money for his activities. He could be, he's very charismatic, and he could carry on his great work. Instead, he decides to go home, and they put him in prison for nine. Why does he go home? Why? Well, you're preaching to the choir. You're asking the same questions that I asked him, and I asked of his wife what and his say? daughter. He looked at me like I'm an idiot. How can you ask this question? If I stay here, I just be- I become one of the many talking heads that just talk to Russians from outside of Russia. And Russians would never trust me. Russians would never believe me unless I partake in their daily, in their daily misery. And I'm sure that people offered him an effective and compelling argument to the contrary, meaning there's a lot of great work you could do. What are you going to be able to accomplish from a jail for nine years? And then they have you there. They're going to kill you there, probably. Exactly. We got to that conversation and basically says, you're right if I were a journalist. If I were a journalist, I would stay here and continue probably doing a better job from here than from there. But I want to be a politician. I want to be president one day. And I can only do it from there. From prison? From Well, I ask him, do you realize that you're going to prison? He says, yes. I ask him, do you think it's going to be for a couple of months? He said, no, Christo, you don't get it. It will be years. So he was completely open-eyed about it. And I asked his wife, does she realize that this is going to happen? She said, absolutely. So it's a different type of people. Is it a martyr complex? Could be, could be, but... uh, What is your opinion? Why did he go back? I mean, I'm sure you share the, some of the same opinions he does. I think fundamentally what Alexei was not comfortable with was the idea and notion of instructing, of telling, encouraging the Russian people to take to the streets, to go up against the regime, to risk getting arrested. He was not comfortable saying those things, commanding those things, encouraging those from things. From a Parisian hotel. From a Parisian hotel, from Vilnius, from Berlin, right, right. from Vienna. If you want to be the moral leader of a nation, which is the role he currently occupies... you got to be shoulder to shoulder. Talk is cheap. You have to be shoulder to shoulder, and you have to be there. And I think that what he is doing, his courage and bravery, hopefully will be an inspiration to the Russian people. And I think that's why he went back. But is it something that we grapple with and struggle with to this day? Absolutely. Was it the right decision? I don't know. But that was between Alexei Navalny and his higher power, and that's the decision he made, and his family is lockstep with him. But it's obviously something that we struggled with. And I was like, I remember I was making the movie and I was hoping that we would get some sort of uncertainty, some semblance of insecurity about the decision or the process, the veneer of of fear. The man's constitution was ironclad. He never let on that he was afraid. He'd say, oh, Daniel, Jesus Christ, of course I have to go back. What am I going to do, sit in Germany? Forget it. But I would imagine, I understand what you're saying. I mean, I understand his commitment, but I wonder if uh, it's going to be easier to poison him. I mean, is he a Jeffrey Epstein? In the United States, we live in a place where people are fatigued by scandal. They are fatigued by by what I call the conspiranoiac mentality. Well, I would not be comfortable equivocating Navalny with Epstein for obvious reasons. Oh, no, 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 but I'm saying in terms of he's a, he's a sitting duck in a prison. Get the guy in prison. If you want to whack him, put him in prison. You know where he is. You control his movements. He is in the custody of the same men who tried to murder him. Krista, what do you think? Well, ju- just remember that what happened to the previous guys who tried to murder him, they're dead now, or one of them is most likely, right? The guy that confessed well, the ones that everything. failed. Yes, the, guy, the, the ones that failed. So oh, they, 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 they kill you. Well, basically... They say, have you sit down with a bowl of poison exactly. if you fail. So why would the new guys try it again? Do you, yeah. you have any of that poison left, uh, <laughs> well, Serge? You, you remember the scene, the marquee scene in our film, when Alexei makes a few phone calls 
and gets an extraction yeah, yeah, of confession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You remember that, oh, God, that part? Yeah. Of, I don't want to ruin the film for No, of course. There's drama in this film unlike any other doc I've seen in recent memory. Well, but, so we know that some of the individuals who were fooled. Well, the, the whole point is there was a set of FSB officers who were given the task to kill Navalny. They failed, but they lived in with the belief that their government, their president, their crook president will protect them from publicity, from bad publicity, from neighbors um, taking revenge on them. That didn't work out. These guys that tried to kill him are now negative celebrities. They, they, all of Russia knows their faces. Their neighbors spray-painted their, their elevator with, like, our, our neighbor is a killer. Because they were factotums of the, of the... Because they were murderous emissaries of this government? Yeah. Or because they're actual fans of Navalny, or both? No, because the neighbors actually didn't realize that the government is a government of murderers, that their neighbor is oh, actually working. That. They didn't realize that. Oh, there are Russians who don't realize that Putin is a yes. murderous regime? Yes, yes, absolutely. We're going to get to that in a second. And I do want to put a button on what you said. You're very right. I did. By no means did I mean to yeah. equivocate Epstein with uh, Navalny for obvious reasons. But I'm just saying that that seems to be the key. You want to get somebody in prison because then you have complete control over where they go, what they do. There's more opportunities to kill them. So he wants to be a part of things. He's willing to suffer. Uh, he's willing to take on the, uh, the horrible consequences to come back and one day hopefully get out of prison. Do people view Navalny as a viable political candidate if he wasn't in prison, if they weren't trying to poison him all the time? Does he have any chance to become the president of Russia? Uh, I, I think he does. For years, uh, the people who doubted him were uh, twofold. One of one part of Russia that didn't like him were fed with propaganda that he's an embezzler. So they just, oh, just a crook uh, that just wants to get some of the government money. And another part thought that he is a government proxy, that he's actually a fake, a full opposition figure, that he's very convenient for, for Putin. Because he's a straw man. Because a straw man that doesn't have a chance to get uh, into the presidency, therefore he's an easy one. But after the poisoning, and especially after the film, and, and honestly, any Russian who's seen the film sees him as a viable presidential candidate. And that's why I think this film has a big future for changing minds and hearts in Russia. And that's why I think and I know that Putin is so upset with the film, not with the investigation so much, not with Navalny so much, but with the film, because people who see the film see him as a viable candidate. What did they say Navalny embezzled? I think they said that he stole donations from his, That's what we said, from his foundation. foundation. But what we have to understand is they have a menu of stuff they just make up. Like the Russian sure. judicial system. Does, I'm saying, what did they accuse him of? They accuse him. I think there was taking the, money from his not for profit. He stole. Uh, originally, they said that he stole lumber and some sort of commodities, and then he stole money from the nonprofit. It's nonsense. He he insulted a war veteran. That's a crime. Uh, just weird, wacky, whatever they can come up with things. And and, and he and, and and he was given suspended sentence sentences for two of these embezzlement charges. Why? Why didn't they dump him in the prison then? Well, the first time, I think it was in 2013, during his run for mayor of Moscow, he was sentenced to five years in prison. But the day of his sentence, tens of thousands of people came out to the streets in protest. And I think that rattled the regime. And they said, we cannot, we don't want to deal so with if, this. So if the response in public is uh, full-throated enough, if there's a lot of people out there making noise about him, I'm going to assume that in, on a public relations uh, level, Navalny is a problem for Putin. Well, he is, but um, it, it, what changed with Navalny, how Navalny made it a big problem for Putin, is Putin had to take much more drastic measures after he returned from Germany than before. He had to silence the islands of free media completely. He had to crush 
The people coming to the streets with force beat old women, uh, like drag young kids in hordes to to uh, detention centers, and the, uh, th- that closed uh, a gap that closed the valve. But but it actually allows the pressure to increase now because these people can't go to the streets, but they have it inside them that this anger. So it, it's a problem for Putin. Daniel Rohr and Christo Grotsev. The subject of another Daniel Rohr documentary was Robbie Robertson. Robertson was also a guest on Here's the Thing. Check out our episode with the legendary musician. We ended up recording the basement tapes. I don't know, there's something like 140 songs or something in the course of this. And what we would do is every day we would go to Big Pink, We'd have some coffee, play some checkers. Bob would write. He wrote on a typewriter. So he would type something up. We'd go down into the basement, grab. Everybody would grab whatever instrument was close. Might even not be the one you play. Anything. Because there was no rules. We'd sit down. We'd mess around, play through a tune. And we'd say, wow, that felt kind of good. To hear more of my conversation... With Robbie Robertson, go to heresthething.org. After the break, Daniel Rohr and Christo Grotsev tell the story of how they convinced Alexei Navalny to allow his life to be filmed. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. 
The documentary film Navalny was shot prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And while there is no shortage of condemnations to be leveled against the Kremlin, I wanted to know what they feel is the most significant criticism of Vladimir Putin and his regime. Well, it's corruption. It's really corruption. The one key word that everybody in Russia understands is uh, driving away um, value from their daily life. They see the wealth of, of the elite that has nothing to do with, with what a normal Western elite would have. And that elite, for people to understand in a timeline, that elite began to accrue on a more concentrated level since when? But that's recent, isn't it, in the last 20 years? Well, most— I mean, There's always been people who profited from that, like in this country, from war profiteering, right, et cetera. Right, but, but, but it seems to me like there's an oligarchical S- layer it, that's bigger now. Suffice it to say that 90% of the oligarchical layer are buddies, school buddies, and judo buddies, and like uh, college buddies of Putin. So they came through him. They're actually holding... So this has increased dramatically during Putin's regime. Uh, absolutely. Right. I, I think... You Before have, that, you didn't have as much of this. Well, you had a couple of oligarchs, and some of them but survived. Not like but not like now. Right. Yes. So that that is the one criticism that is exploited by somebody like, like Navalny, because it's easy to point out and it's visible. And what Navalny would say, if you were here, is that every single issue in Russia... Its, its foundation is in corruption. And if we can tackle corruption, we can start to heal the society. But Alec, there's one thing I want to speak to earlier. You asked Christo quite a pointed question, and that's whether or not Alexei actually has a reasonable chance of ever becoming president. Mm-hmm. And one thing, I, I asked him the same question. I was like, dude, are you like delusional? Like how, how is this actually going to happen? And what he spoke to was the Moscow mayoral race of 2013. And why that is an interesting case study is because he started that race with 2% of the vote. People didn't like him. They caricatured him as just a blogger and, and some wacky internet guy. And he finished with 27% of the vote. It wasn't a fair election. There was malfeasance. He narrowly avoided a runoff. And I think the Kremlin, who let him run in that election, was so nervous about his performance. He ran an American-style campaign. He was kissing babies, knocking on doors, in the subways, distributing literature, tens of thousands of volunteers. There has never been a political organization in Russia like that. They were afraid. I don't know if the guy will be president, but what I hope at the very least is that he will have the chance to compete in a democratic election, whether the Russian people elect him is up to their own agency, is up to the Russian electorate. I just hope, I dream for a future where he can run. In this country, you have people who voted for a candidate in 2016 and again in 2020 who does what a lot of uh, conservatives do, which is they uh, give them a lot of pre-digested pablum about what the conditions are in this country. You know, that's what Fox News is. There's people that need their news pre-digested. Is it the same in Putin's Russia, is it like America, meaning does, does Putin enjoy the support, like Trump, of a massive number of poorly informed people? Yeah. These are the lazy, informationally lazy people. They, they are fine with just getting their news from late night uh, state TV, which is the equivalent of Fox here, which is pre-masticated, pre-chewed. And they don't have time, patience, or interest in getting more. This would be about 60% of the population. Another 20% would be the people who always doubted everything and would consider both sides to any debate to be bad guys, because in Russia, that's how they grew up, being disappointed by the political elite uh, through, through centuries. And then 20% are the younger guys who are actually in, 
interested in information actively. What, what changed with the Navalny poisoning and the protests after that is that this 20% that was the disinterested uh, 20%, they actually became interested and they figured out finally that Putin is the bad guy here. But they were afraid to go out to the street. So that, but that's still progress because that doesn't make them uninformed. That just made them makes them afraid. But the one other thing I want to speak to, which is piggybacking off of what Christo just said, I think it's true that a large majority of the country is being spoon-fed this state media, but I don't think it is totally the agency of the people. It's like there's literally a vacuum of information. It's impossible to obtain if you're living in the middle of the country, if you're not savvy. Anything but. Anything but. And so, absolutely. It's a totally different dynamic. It's a different dichotomy. And it just really needs to be understood that in Russia, you cannot access other points of view other information, unless you're a super savvy person who knows how to use VPNs and who knows how to get around censorship. I disagree with you because even before this censorship was introduced, there were islands of free media there. You could get to Twitter, you could get to Facebook. People are just too lazy. Like 60, 70% of the people just don't want to do that. I want to note for our listeners, this is the first moment where Daniel and Christo are in disagreement. Let's mark this in the script. This is what we always dream of on these shows. Now, How did you first, I mean, you investigated the poisoning and you did a lot of work writing about it and exposing the poisoning, correct? You know, without giving away company secrets, if you will, and proprietary information. How do you go about that? Like, how does that begin? How did did that begin for you? Describe in vague terms who you start calling. It never starts with that investigation. It always starts with a previous investigation, that you've learned something, that you keep it at the back of your mind, and it comes handy later. So what happened in this case, we investigated the poisoning of, remember the the Skripals, the former Russian double spy who uh, went to to the UK and the Russian military intelligence tried to poison him with Novichok in Salisbury in 2018. So we had investigated this, we had cracked this crime, we found out where the poisoners had taken their physical poison, their Novichok, and this turned out to be a particular institution in Russia. And we're not giving too much away, but it's a lab that we discovered and presumed is giving poison to anybody who needs it. Like any government agency who's, who wants to kill somebody gets the poison from there. So we decided to trace those guys from that institute, from that lab, and see with whom they talked in the days before Navalny was poisoned. And that's how we found it. And how do you find that who they talked? Well, that's the beauty of, of this crazy Russian corrupt system. Because Russia is corrupt and uh, dictatorial. The government wants to have information on anybody at any given time. So they gather all this information on you. And that information is for sale. That information is for sale because it's corrupt. Because Putin cannot survive if he doesn't allow his FSB underlings to actually make money on on selling whatever. some of them are vulnerable. Some of them are vulnerable. like you. Exactly. They usually sell this to criminals. And suddenly... Here come journalists who, who are the taking thing. a bit of the... I've got these voicemails from Navalny. How much you want to give me? 50? Come on. 200 rubles? Come on. You're joking, but I had this literal conversation with one of the data traders who's like getting this data from FSB officers and selling it. And when he found out that we are actually publishing investigations with that, he, he wrote to me this angry email. He said... I thought you you were just a criminal. You're a journalist. How dare you? So he was so upset. Yeah. So that's, it's a corrupt system and we exploited the corruption to get the data. 
Well, you first met Navalny where? We first met Navalny in the Black Forest, a small town called St. Blasian in, on the German-French-Swiss border. And, and what was necessary, describe for us, I mean, you're a filmmaker, yeah. and getting people to sit down with you in front of a camera, sometimes that's a pretty Herculean feat. Well, that's was the, it easy to get him in the room or no? That's the, the art of documentary filmmaking is getting in the room. It's being in the right place at the right How time. How easy was it with Navalny? It w- well, I think it w- we had the best shot of anyone in the world, and the reason that was is we were riding on the c- coattails of Christo. Christo came to me one day, and, and I was there with my producer, Odessa Ray, one of the producers of the film, and Christo and I were working on another project that wasn't going well. Christo walks in, and he says, there's something else. And I was like, what's that, Christo? He says, you know that Navalny guy? I said, yeah. He says, I think I have a lead in who tried to poison him. And I go, who's making that movie, Christo? He goes, I don't know. Should I ask? I'm like, yeah, you should fucking ask right now. And because of the work Christo had done on the Skripal case, he had cracked that very famous Russian poisoning story only a few years earlier. Navalny was receptive. And Navalny understood that this is a guy to be taken seriously. So Christo reached out. A week later, we were sneaking across the German-Austrian border, which was closed because of the COVID pandemic. Where were you at the time? We were in Vienna. We what were you, what be, were you doing there? We were in Vienna in limbo, waiting to see if we could go back to another— Who recruited f- you into the to the NSA when you were—you left SCAD after a year? Come on, who recruited you? Come on. I am— I mean, I just happened you, to be in Vienna. You can't even joke about that because the Russians are going to take this interview. They're going to take your voice Absolutely. saying that to me. They're going to put it on state media— and they're going to say, look, here's the evidence. Alec Baldwin knows it. He works for the CIA. I'm joking, Vladimir. Yeah, Vlad. too, too late. Literally, it's too late. They're going to take this. and they're No, no, no. Watch it happen, Christo. Absolutely. It will happen. It's going to happen. happen. You're yeah. going to be on Russian state propaganda calling me a CIA asset, even though you were joking. This Charles. is how these Russians operate. They're like, oh, he works for the State Department. He works for the CIA. They've sure. already said that. Yeah. And so you joke, but it's like, I'm here being like, whoa, 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 whoa. They're going to use your voice calling me a CIA That was guy. a joke, Vladimir. Let's, they, we'll get that on the camera. Thank you for specifying. Yeah. I was in Vienna with Christo and Odessa. We were working on another project in a former Soviet state. It wasn't going well. And I, my life was spiraling. I was bugging out. I didn't know if I'd go back to Canada, if I'd stick around for a little bit longer. And then he walks in and magnificently says, what about Navalny? And a week later, we were sitting across from Alexei and his chief, chief investigator, uh, Maria Pevchik. And my job was to convince them why we needed to make a documentary, why we had to start right now. Christo, what was your perspective on that first meeting? He, he wasn't buying it. He was like looking at this kid, uh, much younger. He didn't believe it, but he allowed to give him a chance. And the way we agreed with him is, let, let's start rolling. And then we decide later. Because otherwise, you're missing every moment, every day, not being recorded. And that's what sold the, the whole project to Navalny. And then a week later, they were like best of friends. And it, was on, it wasn't well, going we, anywhere. I would say best of I have to, <laughs> As a filmmaker, I have yes. to just maintain that, that you know, Alexei is, is, is an easy guy to hang out with. We bonded over our wonkish love of politics and all of this. But... It's still important that I maintain a critical eye. This is a guy who is controversial in his own way, who's a complicated and compelling figure, and his complications make him compelling. But he and I hit it off, and we enjoyed spending time together, and I think that's part of the reason why we were able to enmesh ourselves in his cohort so naturally, so quickly. Documentary filmmaker Daniel Rohr and Bellingcat journalist Christo Grotsev. If you're enjoying this conversation, tell a friend and be sure to follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Daniel Rohr and Christo Grotsev recount the dramatic final moments with Navalny and his family. 
before his heroic return to Russia. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. I asked Daniel Rohr and Christo Grotsev to speculate on what is next for Putin amidst the rumors of his ailing health. The important thing is that people at the top believe that he has cancer. Right. And that makes him vulnerable. And that makes them unlikely to follow any order that he gives them that endangers their own longevity, political longevity. So this is why Putin is not the sort of uh, all-powerful dictator that he was a year ago. He's vulnerable. Everybody knows that he may have cancer. And this is what matters. What do the people uh, inside Russia think Who's his likely successor? Is someone teed up? Because with the Russians, there's often a likely successor. You know what has been the strongest sort of strategic talking point of the Kremlin? Uh, there's no successor. If not Putin, then who? This is a phrase, a said phrase. That it's is a vacuum there. It's a vacuum. That's why people have actually not looked for a successor and have sort of embraced this willingness to be uh, the president or the Tsar forever. I don't think the people, the regular people in the near future will decide who the successor is. It's going to be still the oligarchs and the elite and the generals. And I wonder if at, at some point, because of this war, this egregious war, Navalny doesn't become a more acceptable alternative to the oligarchs. Uh, because at least with him, they know that he's going to tax them 30% of their their wealth, but they're going to preserve their lifestyle. And uh, with Putin, they're, they've lost everything. They are not invited to any party at, uh, at, uh, in London or in, in New York anymore. They can't travel. And this will change if uh, Navalny comes to power. Well, if Navalny comes to power, I mean, if Putin, I mean, to take me through this because I'm yearning to hear your take on this, which is that if, let's say, theoretically, Putin dropped dead tomorrow, there's no chance that Navalny would become the president. They're not going to hold an election, are they? Well, it's going to be chaos. And there will be somebody who comes in as an interim sure. power guy. So what is Navalny's path to the presidency? Even post-Putin. What's going to happen is a fight, internal domestic fight, uh, strife among the different groups of the power elite. Putin has made the only claim to fame that he has is he has been able to manage these different interests within the uh, generals and within the FSB. And once he's gone, it will be a 
fight everybody against everyone else. And this is what has happened in every Western normal country. That is that is the normal path to actual democracy, which just hasn't happened in Russia yet. So I think we're going to see a couple of years of, of, of terrible dictatorship by somebody else that will gradually go into a real election at some point. Why is poison the uh, weapon of choice in these assassinations? So the first answer is that if it works, it is un- it's deniable. It, you, you don't discover it. Now, in this case, they discovered it, but it was not meant to be discovered. So it's just a heart attack, right? And the second answer is if it doesn't work, then it's so scary that it actually discourages dissent. It's, it's, it's the worst way to die. You hear the shrieks, the, the, the yells of, of, uh, Navalny, of Navalny in the brain. Yes. Yeah. And that, you don't want to die like that. Right. So they it, want them to suffer. They want, yeah, exactly. So, uh, this is, but, this but, is the but, chemical equivalent of, uh, of uh, dum-dum bullets. Yeah. Exactly. But it's not new. It's not something that Putin invented. It's, it, he inherited it from the KGB. They love this thing. Uh, you, you may remember... And if it works, sometimes it's untraceable, meaning someone's dead and you say, oh, it's a heart attack. Right, exactly. There, there was this Bulgarian journalist who was killed with a poisoned umbrella, remember, in the 70s in mm-hmm. London? That's what the KGB did. They, they prepared this umbrella with a little pellet that had something like Novichok, and, and he died. One of my favorite documentaries is Assassins. We were talking about this before, where the, where the two women, yeah. are, believe, are yeah. coached because they think they're on a game show. Yeah, exactly. And they kill Kim Jong-un's uh, uh, brother by rubbing the poison in his eyes at the airport while they're presenting him with some game show surprise. Anyway, yeah. that, that film, Assassins, was just absolutely numbing. But you think, but obviously, poison is better than spattering somebody's head against the wall in a hotel. Well, if you spatter... Even with a silencer. But the reality is if you spatter someone's head against the wall in a hotel, then you have a, as as one of the characters in the film says, a body with a hole in it that you have to explain. If Alexei died on that plane as the Russian government intended, an autopsy would have been carried out by the Criminalistics Institute. The same guys who poisoned him. So it's really the perfect crime. Are either of you... Are you worried about your own safety? Or were you ever worried about your own safety during the production of this film? Absolutely not. When you're sitting next to, or standing next to Alexei Navalny, who's the bravest man on the planet, and his staff who are actually in danger, you know, you can't help but but feel inspired by their courage and bravery. Uh, I think the Russians will continue to make efforts to discredit the film by coming after me. That's why I take it so seriously when we joke about the CIA recruitment stuff, because they, they will literally take this and they will put it on Channel One and they will say, oh, look, here's the evidence. He's admitting it. He's, he is from this agency or that agency, which is nonsense. So I'm more concerned about uh, character assassination, you know, them uh, uh, finding someone I've met, never met who said that makes horrible accusations about me, something like that. That's my concern. What do you think, Christo? No, I totally agree. With you, they will just go after your character. They'll probably send some nice girls to sleep with you. What are you going to work on next? You're going to do a documentary about ABBA? <laughs> something kind of unwind, relax. I want to do something that is completely tonally different. I have a few things in development that I'm apprehensive. I don't want to jinx, so I'm apprehensive sure. to talk about. Um, but, but most documentarians I know have a bunch of pots on the stove. Yeah, you, you have to, you yeah. have to. But this one was so all-consuming, and uh, it's this is a, a, a daunting one to follow up, as I'm sure you can imagine. But I want to make something very soon, and I want it to be uh, totally totally different. But I love making documentaries, so I hope I get to make another one. Now, Navalny, what was the last time you were in his presence? When did you last see him? Well, I can tell you exactly. It was January 17th in Berlin, Germany at about 1.30 in the afternoon. Of this year? Of 2021. 20 last year, yeah. He uh, got in, I, I filmed, I was shooting. I he was went to prison when? Filming on January 17th was the first day he was incarcerated. Of last year? Of 2021. Right, right, right. And I, I filmed him saying, you see it in the film, he says goodbye to his colleagues. And then we walked downstairs to the car park where there are, are cars 
protective vehicles waiting for him. He gets in the car, and I I didn't I was working. I was shooting, so it's not like I could go say thank you. It's yeah. nice to meet you. Goodbye. He understood the line you have to keep. Absolutely, and he understood that, and I understood that, and. As he was driving off, I gave him a nod, and he gave me a nod back, and he was off. And you never spoke to him again? I, nothing? No. Nothing? Nothing. Well, you've done this amazing job because you have certainly—I'm uh, not saying this to be kind, and I know I'm, 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 I'm in a long line of people that are saying to you, what a re- remarkable and what a talented filmmaker you are. Thank you've you, done sir. a remarkable job with this film, showing the world who Navalny is, at least who we want to believe he is. I'm, I'm disappointed that he chose to go to prison, and I, although I understand the victor in Casablanca kind of code, but— your film is going to be, for many people in this country, their introduction and yep. their first chance and an up-close look at Navalny. And, and that's something that we, we take very seriously, and it's, it's very important to all of us that as many people in the world see this film as possible. The reality is, Alec, that Alexei is in peril. He is in a very bad spot right now, and the way that you keep him alive got him. Yeah. is by keeping his name in the global consciousness. Right. Is he allowed to have visitors in prison? He can see his wife and his daughter once every three months for an hour. This film is going to be widely available, and everyone in the world needs to see it, and they need to tell their friends to see it. Alexei's life depends on it. Thank you both. Thank you. Director Daniel Rohr and journalist Christo Grotsev. Navalny is currently in theaters around the world and will premiere on CNN TV in North America on April 24th. This episode was produced by Kathleen Russo, Zach McNeese, and Maureen Hoban. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com.